Hi, hello. Welcome to the Dirty Rabbit Hole podcast. I'm Michael Foreman, author. Yes, hi again. It's Michael Foreman, author. I write novels based around sexless marriages. And the inspiration for that comes from a sexless marriage that I know very well, my own. And I ended up putting pen to paper many years ago and began writing stories based on the frustration, the anger, the depression, the jadedness, and all the elements and emotions that go along with surviving what is a sexless marriage. Perhaps you're in a sexless marriage and you're looking for support and trying to make sense of what is a messy environment and a messy area of life, well, then you can listen to this podcast because not only do I share with you bits and pieces of my stories from my books, but also real life stories, which inadvertently become part of the narratives. Last podcast, I was talking to you about some counseling sessions that my wife and I attended where great many truths came out. And the biggest truth was my wife did not want to talk about sex. Just to bring you up to speed, we had seven years celibacy due to religious reasons. And then we got married and 10 out of 10 years of that were sexless. We did try having sex on our wedding night, but it was awkward. It was difficult. Periodically through our relationship, we tried to have sex, but again, it was difficult. She felt pain, a pain probably from a medical term known as dyspareunia, but it was not something that she was willing to accept or have treated. She believed that all the problems that existed in our relationship came down to me wanting sex. And of course, I did want sex after seven years of celibacy and another 10 years of no sex in a marriage. Uh, it started to become an issue for me, but not for her. You can just imagine if you didn't eat for a few days, the only thing on your mind would be food. So it wasn't just a case of low libido. She's asexual. Sex is something she doesn't need. What she needs is a man in her life to give her that identity of being a woman. Now, she's also a feminist, so it kind of flies in the face of, I'm sure there's a lot of internal conflict on that issue itself. But I think... Predominantly, being a Catholic, born and raised, she needed to have a man in her life because marriage is about one man and one woman. You get a house, you have children, and you do everything that your parents did. But we were best friends. And I say were because if you've been listening to the podcast, we are no longer together. We've been apart for a very long period of time. And it's taken me this long to get my thoughts together on the whole sexless marriage thing. I was never comfortable talking about it. In many ways, I didn't want to accept it. I kept fighting it. I kept believing that it was always going to get better. In fact, when we were dating in our celibate relationship, we talked about it many times and uh, we both agreed that it would get better once we got married. Well, it didn't get better when we got married. In fact, it probably got worse because as the years go on and you, you realize that some of your life is being left behind and you're wondering why. Is love so strong that it can overcome intimacy, physical intimacy? Some of us can live with that. And there are some folks listening today who have found a sexless marriage after having a pretty healthy sex life before it. You know, your body's change, your age, you don't feel like sex so much. That's okay if both of you are moving in that direction, but it's not okay if one of you wants to continue and the other one wants nothing to do with it. It's even worse if one of you doesn't want to talk about it and the other one needs to talk about it. That's where we weren't. <laughs> we weren't in that particular position. 
We were young and healthy. We went from our late teens to our 20s to our 30s, and then eventually we went our own separate ways, and that was the resolution to the problem. And I dare say there will be people listening today who will have to go down the same path. There will be no resolution by going to counselling, by talking to people and trying to bring back the magic. There will be a no-win situation, and the longer you take it, the worse it gets. But if you have children, or you have financial ties, or you have traditions to uphold, then it may be a little difficult to just sever the ties and go your own way and start again. And some people don't want to do that anyway because it's just too scary. I had to do it because I knew it had to be done. Quite frankly, I didn't want to have a woman beside me in the bed and not be able to reach out and touch her. And not for her to want to reach over and touch me. Part of my identity lies within sex. I do like intimacy. And I know that I'm a guy and it's a cliché for men to not have sex from their women, but they're not getting enough or they're not getting enough quality sex. But I've been reading over the, the last six or seven years texts from all kinds of books and online forums. About 20% of females have the same problem with their men. So it's not a male-female issue. It's a spouse-spouse issue. And really, the person who wants sex the least in a relationship is the one who's controlling the sex in the relationship in the first place. You can't make someone have sex. You can entice them. You can lead them to it. But if they invariably turn you down, then sex is off for both of you. She or he has their foot on the brake and you're going nowhere. So I wanted to take you to a time in the counselling room where we were having a discussion about all kinds of things. We'd already made that discovery that in six weeks, my wife, now ex-wife, did not mention the word sex once to the counsellor. She said she'd like to go to the counsellor first and lay the groundwork on it. She didn't want me in the room. She just wanted one-on-one with this good Christian counsellor, whom she found on her own after we'd tried other counsellors. I finally showed up to do my part because I wanted to be a part of the counselling. I wanted to know what she felt. I wanted to know what was causing the problem. Did I do something wrong? I didn't feel that I did anything wrong. But I wanted to know if there was something in her past that she wasn't willing to share with me. Maybe there was some kind of abuse. I don't know. I had no idea. I was open-minded, but I was willing to listen to anything. But when I got there and the counsellor asked me about what I felt the issues were in the relationship that were causing the problems, I just said, we didn't have any sex. And I left it at that. And the counsellor looked at his card of notes, couldn't find any remark on it. There was no recollection that she'd spoken about sex. And he turned to my wife and said, well, what do you think about it? And she just basically fell into a blubbering mess and tears. And we went through this process many times. In fact, she spent most of the time talking for the first 45 minutes of every session. She'd talk about problems that she felt were a part of her side of the deal. Nothing to do with sex. It all had to do with stresses at work that I didn't understand what she was going through. And 15 minutes left to go. The counsellor would turn to me and ask me a question. Well, that first time I just said we didn't have sex. And the next few times I kept it exactly the same way. He did ask me what I felt was the problem. And I said, I don't know. That's why I'm here. I thought I did the right thing by being supportive of my wife in those years of celibacy. I'm not particularly a religious person. I'm certainly not Catholic and I'm certainly not devout at anything in religion. But I was very supportive and in love with my girlfriend who became my fiancé who in turn became my wife. So I supported that. And it was difficult. I'll admit that. 
About 18 months into our relationship, I was ready to take our relationship a little further. So we did have clashes at that particular time, but maybe I wasn't pushy enough. Maybe I was too subtle and I enabled her and this routine exists in our relationship. So much so that by the time we got married, it was so deep-rooted into the relationship that we couldn't get out of it. And maybe she's a different person with anyone else because someone else will treat her in a different way and she will behave in a different way. Same goes with me. I behave differently as a result of the, the former relationship but also as a result of a new relationship. And if you're going to go your own separate way and break away from your sexless marriage, that'll happen to you too. But while you're inside that bubble, you have this ongoing status quo. In my case, I felt the status quo was passive abusiveness. Without sex, it was a form of abuse. I still find it hard to say that word because we tend to relate the word to violence. Well, sex is a physical thing too. That goes without saying. If we believe in monogamy, then we believe that we must be one for one. If our spouse wants sex, we get involved with sex. If they don't want sex, then we don't get involved with sex. It's okay when you both are on the same page, but it is definitely not okay when you're not on the same page. If you read some online forums, some people use the word deniers, the spouse that doesn't provide another spouse with sex. And you even see the word abuser being used. I'm kind of reluctant to take it over the line of abuse, but I know what they're getting at. The feelings of psychological torture are very real. Okay, there are no scars. There are no bruises. There are no wounds to speak of. But the pain is very, very real. And I remember talking to my now ex-wife's mother about sex and priests. She said, oh, yes, I think a priest would be a good advisor in sex. And I shook my head and said, how can someone who doesn't have sex possibly be a good advisor? And she said, well, you don't have to feel pain to be a good doctor. At the time, I wanted to act in a polite way. I was just dating their daughter. But in my mind, I had a response. You show me a doctor who's unable to feel pain, and I bet you have found an unqualified doctor. But we all know that priests have sex. <laughs> I have spoken about it a couple of times in my podcasts before. The Catholic Church, as well as many of the other churches, a lot of the clergy are having sex, whether they're having sex with each other, uh, whether they're having sex with prostitutes or members of their own parish, doesn't matter. They're having sex. Sure, there's a couple of asexual people in there and social misfits who can't figure out what sex is all about. And it attracts a few of the nutters and they, in turn, become counsels to people who are in the real world having real sex part of what's called a marriage. But no, these celibate clergy are out there trying to tell us how to live our life in a relationship when they haven't got a physical relationship of their own, supposedly. And my wife and I did have problems, but I wouldn't take it to a priest. I would never, ever take it to a priest. So she came up with the idea of finding this Christian man. She heard him on a radio station driving home one night. He sounded quite nice, empathetic. And he was talking about the education system and how difficult it is for teachers to relate with their spouses. And it kind of tripped a button in her mind. And she said, I'm going to go and contact him. Now, we had counselling for, what, four years. And we went to a couple of counsellors. And they seemed to take one side or the other. 
really a counsellor needs to be the third party, but they can't they can't really take a side because that becomes a two on one situation inside the counselling room, and that doesn't work very well at all. So she found this fellow had a preliminary appointment with him to find out what he was like, and then went along for, I think, four, four or five sessions before I came along. And as I mentioned before, in all that time, they never talked about sex. She never told him, and he never asked her. But knowing my ex-wife, she would have talked and talked and talked to the point where there was no time left to bring up the subject of sex, because that's how it was in our life. We booked up things in our weekly schedules, We didn't have any children. There were long weekends. There were holidays. There were trips away. There was no real reason, not no physical reason, but if you book up enough things in the course of any given week, and that includes the weekend and holidays and trips away, then you can't find your way to a bedroom. So my wife was involved with committees, choirs, panels, church, social groups, you name it. And it was a clever piece of deception. Now, whether she did it purposely or this was a subconscious thing, the outcome was still the same. We did argue about it, and when we got to the counselling room, the only thing she could say to the counsellor is that I didn't understand her. I think I understood her pretty well. I think I probably understood her better than she thought. What I needed to do was start to understand me, because as each year went on, I got darker and darker and darker, and I wasn't even aware that I was falling into a pit of depression. It was a slow slide. I got sucked in. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, you saw it. (laughs) It was on the cards. You were celibate for seven years. But hang on, what about love? What about hope and trust and faith? Someone has to do it. I wasn't totally naive, but I did have those other things. I did have trust and I did have faith and I did have love. That was supposed to get us through. It wasn't enough. When we went our separate ways, I decided to write a note to my wife about how I felt. But it wasn't the kind of note I'd end up sending. This is the kind of note counsellors will tell you to write to get the internalised feelings externalised. And I wrote for a very long period of time. I read what I wrote and I didn't like it. It represented the spiral that I'd found myself in. But I liked the volume and the tenacity to write at length. I left it alone for a little while and then I came back to it and decided to write a story. A fictional story. It allows me to change the names so the guilty parties aren't identified. But it also allows me to be a little bit creative. It gives me motive to write in the first place and gives my character a motive to, one, have an affair, two, get away from the house, three, explain what it's like to be in in a sexless marriage, and four, deal with the ramifications of all that angst and anxiety and fear and anger and depression. I sent it out there, and it's called Seethings. I followed it up with a sequel that I had pretty much ready to go at the end of that writing process. It's called Seethings 2. It's about what happens after the primary affair takes place. Both are currently available on smashwords.com. Just do a search for me, Michael Foreman, or type in the words Seethings, S-E-E-T-H-I-N-G-S. Both are ebooks available in every digital format you can think of, plus a few more you haven't. Yes, I have a website too. It's michaelformanwriting.com. And although it isn't specifically about sexless marriages, it does mention the topic 
and the link it has to the book's narratives. It just so happens to include many other elements not spoken here on the podcast. Go have a look. I'll wait. Go on. Oh, okay. You can look any time you like. Back to the Dirty Rabbit Hole podcast. You're probably wondering why the Dirty Rabbit Hole. Well, it's very simple. If you're in a sexless marriage and it's a long-term one, you're going to go down a rabbit hole. And if you go exploring long enough, you're probably going to get your hands dirty. For some of us, that will mean having an affair. For some of us, that will mean resigning ourselves to the fact that we have a sexless marriage for life. That's why it's called the Dirty Rabbit Hole Podcast. And at the beginning and the end of each podcast, there's a little piece of music. You might recognise it. It's called Have You Ever Seen the Rain? There's a really good reason why I use it here. It's a metaphor to life and of love. For those of us in sexless marriages, the possibility of rain falling down on a sunny day is real. Those lyrics resonate with me because I tried to keep upbeat and sunny when clearly it rained and kept on raining. Those storm clouds loomed large while I stood grinning like a dumb Cheshire cat, trying to feign happiness while it continued to pour around me. And perhaps it's going to rain on you today. Maybe this podcast has just given you a little inspiration to do something about it. Well, this one's done and dusted. Just remember, it can always rain on your parade. See ya. (laughs) 